0: You can open your Bibles to Psalm 88, and a few weeks ago I told you this day was coming. Psalm 88 is known as the black sheep of the Psalter. It is the darkest psalm, and therefore the title of the sermon today is, Listen to this on the worst day of your life. How should we deal with dark times? This psalm is unique in its lack of hope and despairing conclusion. Maybe for you, the worst day has already happened. Maybe it's unfolding now. Maybe it will come in the future. And you'll find your way back to this message when you need it most. Not only for you, but maybe there are some people in your life. And they don't know what to do on the worst day of their life, and you can share this sermon with them as one way that you can help. Because of the nature of this psalm, my goal today is to respect the gravity of the theme as I seek to shepherd you and as God seeks to shepherd me with what's special about this. We have to know first and foremost going into it, because this is a psalm, we have to know that this is a song and it's a sad song it is the saddest song in a book of songs meant to be sung to god and the thought of a sad song being in the bible is really profound the songwriters of our day know the power and the purpose of sad music In fact, Elton John wrote a whole song about sad songs. The song is about sad songs. Guess there are times when we all need to share a little pain, and ironing out the rough spots is the hardest part, when memories remain, and it's times like these when we all need to hear the radio, because from the lips of some old singer, we can share the troubles we already know. Turn them on, or as he sings it, turn them on. Turn them on. Turn on those sad songs. When all hope is gone, sad songs say so much. Well, the Bible gets that. There are sad songs in the Bible, and they serve not just an earthly purpose, uh, but a divine purpose. And it is a common need among humanity. All of us need to know what to do, what to say, how to express ourselves when we go through the darkest days. Psalm 88, it says a song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezrahite. So that's a lot of introductory material telling you that a songwriter wrote this as a part of a concerted effort to write music to lead God's people to praise. This is a praise song for God's people. Verse 1 O Lord, God of my salvation. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. What we find here is a series of different ways to express... The same thing this person is in the worst period of their life they're finding a variety of different emotional ways primarily to express this to god but understand from the beginning that this entire psalm serves a purpose it says "O lord god of my salvation i cry out day and night before you it's a cry it's a song and a prayer to god So jot this down, number one. Cry out to God in prayer and praise. Cry out to God in prayer and praise. The psalmist is modeling what to do when we feel like all hope is gone. It says, O Lord God. It's to God. The Lord, the covenant name Yahweh of God that reflects his eternal nature and his divine sovereignty The one true God is who this song is addressed to. And when you're going through the darkest times, no other name is worthy of your full attention. You have to cry out to the one and only true God. He is the Lord and he is the God of my salvation, meaning the God who saves. Are you crying out to the God, the Lord who saves? There is a God. He is Lord and he saves. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear, turn your ear to my cry. He is a God who hears us. He is a God who responds to us. This is a listening God. And this is day, verse 1 says, and night. Sun up to sun down. There is a God. He is Lord. He saves us. And he's listening sun up to sun down. Are you crying to him Are you praying to him? Are you singing to him? Start there. Stay there. Cry out to God in prayer and praise. When? Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles. Jot this down. When your soul is full of troubles. When your soul is full of troubles. There are inner struggles that we face throughout the day. Anxiety, doubt, depression, despondency. Things that knock us down. And those troubles come, and often those troubles go. This psalm is written by a man whose soul was full of troubles. Plural. Maybe there was one, then another, and another, and another, but now he's full of troubles. He feels like that's all that's inside of him. He's full of troubles. There are a variety of troubles that inspire some of the music that we listen to when we're down. There's a variety of sorrows in life, and those sorrows prompt sad songs, laments, uh, ways that with our melancholy spirit we try and share our grief. I was interested to find out that Rolling Stone magazine did a reader poll in 2013. They asked their readers to vote on the 10 saddest songs of all time. Do you think you could name the 10 saddest songs of all time. Number 10, country song, of course, Hank Williams, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, written about the pain from his failing marriage. Number 8, John Prine wrote a song in 1971 called Sam Stone about a Vietnam War vet who came home and was addicted to heroin. And one of the lines says, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. The song ends with the character overdosing because of his addiction. Sad song. Number seven was Pearl Jam Black. Eddie Vedder wrote it, most people believe, uh, because of his divorce. And the line that crowds all over the world shouted with him in concerts at the end, I know someday you'll have a beautiful life. I know you'll be a star in somebody else's sky. Why, why can't it be mine? Lost love seven. Number four, of course, you know, Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle, about a dad who didn't spend enough time with his son growing up. What made the song even sadder is that Chapin died in a car accident in 1981, never got to see his own children growing up. Number three, I've got to play a clip from number three. Listen to part of number three. (laughs) day is long. know the name? What's the name of that song? When it comes on in the car and you're all alone, you just have to leave it on. You think to yourself, they're right. There's just so much pain in this life. The video, if you don't remember, very powerful. It goes, there's a traffic jam and it goes from car to car and it kind of shows what everyone is thinking, all of their problems. And What's also profound is throughout the video there's religious icons, a statue of Jesus or an angel and a person standing up, we don't know his purpose, up on the top of the freeway throwing pages of the Bible down on these people. And it shows that even in the secular world people are seeking for some divine encounter during their pain and everyone has it. Of course the number one saddest song song of all time was uh, Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven. His son Connor was just four years old when he fell to his death from the 53rd floor of a New York building in 1991. Not long after that, Clapton and uh, his songwriter penned Tears in Heaven as a tribute to his child. All of these songs are sad songs. They grow out of a variety of troubles, and troubles will fill our soul. And God puts a sad song in the Bible because this world will compound the troubles in our soul. For my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. Jot this down. When you feel death is near, Sheol is a word for grave. The grave is near. Death is is near. Or perhaps has arrived. Maybe the psalmist is sick. Maybe someone has threatened them. We're not sure why this psalmist feels the way he does, but he is doomed. He has no hope of survival. None. It's been decided he's a dead man. In fact, he talks throughout this psalm as if he's in a graveyard, verse 5, with other dead people like one set loose among the dead. He talks as if he's already been lowered into his tomb and he feels buried alive. That's bad. That's bad. When you feel death is near, things couldn't be worse. He says... I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Write this down. When you have no strength. When you have no strength. He can't get out of it. He can't get out of it. He can't. No strength. There's nothing more he can do about it. He feels powerless. And there comes a point when we feel like we have no control over these problems. One psychiatrist posted a chart that tries to assess a person's overall level of distress. And this is based on a secular theory of psychology that uh, I don't really have any interest in exploring that, but the chart is very helpful for self-assessment. So check it out. Here's a picture of this chart. And uh, what I like about the chart is it helps, it gives some emotional words and tries to help people to explain how they're feeling. And of course, down in the green, You know, you feel good, really good. There's joy, but then things change. And there's panic, fear, anxiety, worry, or even rage, anger, irritation, frustration. And you are either fighting or flighting when things start to go wrong. But then if they keep going wrong, you cross over. And then there's helplessness, depression, numbness, shame, shutting down, hopelessness, preparation for death and feeling trapped and he calls that the freeze the collapse and that dotted line right there is what really caught my attention because between the fight flight and the freeze it says you thought you could I can but then when you get to the point where you say I can't everything changes and that really is the Place this psalmist has gotten to. Whatever they thought they could do to change things or improve them, whatever they thought God could do, it's all gone. And and he's faced with the stark reality that he can't. And whether it took you years or however long it took you, maybe you've arrived at that place where you are facing the stone-cold reality that you are helpless, powerless, Nothing you can do will change this. You have no strength. Maybe you have lost heart, felt the pain of crippling trauma. It could be emotionally or physically. Your power is all gone. I've been there. Have you been there? Are you there? You have no strength. Jot this down. And when you feel God is against you, this is what makes it worse. It says in verse 6, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. The psalmist feels like God is against him. Like God is against him. It says, your wrath, verse 7, lies heavily upon me. Now, we don't have any indication in this psalm, like we do in other psalms, that the psalmist did something wrong. There are times where David, it says in the heading, David sinned, and here's what he wrote about that, and it's a repentance. Because this psalmist doesn't give us any indication that he did something wrong, the fact that God's wrath is upon him means he feels like There's cruel and unusual punishment happening here. The nature of his distress feels out of line with God's loving character. And the psalmist talks as if, get this, God himself has already placed this man in his grave and then filled it with water. Your waves overwhelm me. Here's a picture of a a pallbearer, and the psalmist is describing God as that. God carried me to my grave. He feels forsaken. He feels God is against him. Certainly, given my agony, God must be against me, is what he's thinking. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. It continues to get worse. You have caused my companions to shun me and have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim with sorrow. Jot this down. When you feel abandoned and alone, others have walked away. Nobody is showing up to help to hear they're not just neglecting you it says you have made me a horror to them a horror the niv says you have made me repulsive to them why would friends and family turn away from this person as if they're repulsive well it could be physically there are some illnesses where the community had to put that person out of the community um But it could also be spiritually. They kind of combined, if you were suffering physically, they assumed too often that God must be punishing you. Therefore, you were spiritually a source of defilement to them. Because if God's against you, and I go hang out with you, then I'm going to get zapped too. So whether they see it as this person's physically defiled or spiritually defiled, no one wants to be around this person. And therefore, the loneliness sets in. They don't just feel like God has abandoned them, they feel like everyone else has abandoned them. We have to realize that it's just simply not true. Some of the most righteous people in the Bible, Job, felt like God was against them or away from them, but he was right there at work. Paul was beaten and thrown in jail and left for dead and stoned, and and he was writing the Bible while a lot of this was happening. Jesus Himself, God's Son, was crushed and cast off by this world. So we can't assume just because life is bad and we're suffering that God is against us. In fact, Psalm thirty-four eighteen, we'll put that up on the screen. Uh, it says this: Psalm thirty-four eighteen, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God's actually coming closer when your pain is amplified, and He comes to save. When it feels like God is farthest away, He is often closer than He's ever been. Verse 8, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. So jot this down. When you feel trapped, when you feel trapped, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Feel trapped, confined, can't escape, and so grief abides. Well, in just 8, 9, Verses we have already come to such a dark place. He's trapped in a tomb of grief. Wow, how heavy this is. And Christians, we have to understand that we will suffer in this life terrible loss, sickness, maybe even chronic illness, broken relationships, natural disasters, uh, life calamity. And Psalm 88 shows us That God is able to articulate and commemorate the anguish that we experience by his Holy Spirit. Remember what we believe about the Bible. This psalm, this saddest song, was breathed into the Bible by God. And therefore, it's his voice coming through the author to us. And we have to understand what's going on here. The Spirit of God is prompting this painful cry to come out of this tortured man. And therefore, He's prompting you to pray and sing when you are suffering. So number one, cry out to God in prayer and praise. It goes on to say this, Verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? So he's trying to reason with God. It's a bit of a cross-examination. In other words, if you let me die, there's no way I can do what you have created me to do. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Six questions. Bam, 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 bam. Now, in the Old Testament, the saints were left wondering how on earth God could serve God's purposes. But in the New Testament, we have the answer. And so I can't leave these questions unanswered because these questions that, that it, the entire nation of Israel would sing and lament for hundreds of years have been answered in Christ. So number two, jot this down understand that Jesus is God's answer to all of our pain. Jesus has answered these six rapid-fire questions. And so in Christ, we understand that God has not removed himself from the problem of pain and death, nor has he left these questions unanswered or unheard. God himself entered into all the agony of life. The Old Testament, they didn't know this yet. How? But in the New, we know where God's plan was going. Jot this down. Jesus endured betrayal... And abandonment. Jesus came down from heaven Christmas, angels sang at his birth. He lived the perfect life. He did nothing wrong ever. And yet he was abandoned. He was betrayed. His disciples and the whole nation turned against him. You see, it was the week of a festival. The whole country was gathered together. Jesus was teaching in the temple. He was healing people. People thought he was the Messiah who was going to rule the country. But I think it was on Wednesday midweek, Judas slunk away and went to meet with uh, some of the religious leaders. And he said, how much will you give me if I turn him over to you? This is what I want. They were happy to give him a bag of silver. And Judas set him up. His own inner circle set him up so that he was betrayed and abandoned. And the night Jesus was arrested, Judas betrayed christ with a kiss and then all of the disciples fled and when christ was on trial in the darkness of the night it was just a servant girl who went up to peter the apostle and said I, you knew him I, i've seen you around him and peter shouted at the top of his lungs i never knew him they all fell away jesus endured betrayal and abandonment jot this down and he was left to die in darkness by god Jesus was left to die in darkness by God. We know our Bibles. And when it comes to the account of Christ's crucifixion, in Mark 15, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Out of the mouth of Christ, the only Son of God himself, comes the question that we all ask, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's a picture of the cross. What was Jesus doing there? He was bearing the sin of life. He was enduring the rejection of man, and this symbolized the total final act of man's rejection of God. And yet, he was dying on the cross to save us from our sin. He was left to die in darkness by God. And then jot this down. He rose in victory and conquered the grave. He rose in victory and conquered the grave. It says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And to these six questions, the answer in Christ is yes, 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 emphatically, eternally, yes, yes. He raises up the dead. He works in the darkness. We don't have to wonder anymore. He has done it. It is finished. Yes, your spirit can rise up to praise God through those dark, deep waters of the grave. Yes, his wonders spring up from the very bowels of hell, and his most righteous acts, the act of all time that surpasses all deeds, came out of a tomb. Here's a picture. Came out of the tomb. It was from the grave that God's greatest light shone out. The psalmist had no idea how this could be. He rose in victory and conquered the grave. So I want you to understand when you feel like you are living in a tomb, Jesus already emptied your grave of all of its power to harm you. Listen, there's nothing in there that can harm you. There's nothing to fear in darkness or death that Christ hasn't personally endured and vanquished. So number two, Understand Jesus is God's answer to all of our pain. Cry out to God in prayer and praise. Understand Jesus is God's answer to all of our pain. And then number three, cry out more in prayer and praise. The third point is like the first. Cry out more in prayer and praise because he just keeps going. Verse 13, and I commend the psalmist. I admire his faith. He didn't know how God would answer all the wickedness in the world. He had no clue how God would take death itself and bring anything good out of it. He didn't know. But he continued to pray. He continued to praise. How much more should we, knowing the ending of the story? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood. All day long, they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Boy, this hits on the life and death of Christ in some pretty specific ways, doesn't it? Doesn't the psalmist feel a lot like the Messiah would feel? It almost takes on a prophetic tone. Jot this down. When you feel cast away, cry out more in prayer and praise. Cast away. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? He feels pushed far away, distanced from God, disregarded, disgraced. And pain and death do rob us of our dignity and our sense of significance. And based on how this psalmist is talking to God, I I wonder, do you feel like you're learning to become more honest with God about your feelings? He's being so honest. Do you feel like you are able to be this honest with God about how you're feeling? Because he's modeling for us an open and honest relationship with God. God this down, when God is hiding his face. Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 14. God's face is a um, metonym. It stands in for his presence and his favor, right? So he doesn't mean literally God's face in front of him, but God hiding his face means he doesn't feel like he has God's attention or his favor. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like does God see me? And not only does He not see me, is He actively like veiling Himself so that I can't see Him? He's hiding from me. How, feels like the opposite of Eden, right? Where man hid from God. Now it feels like God is hiding from man. When God is hiding His face, maybe you feel like God should be doing more showing up, healing, directly acting. You can't see. You can't know because his presence is veiled. We know he is everywhere. We know he is here, and the psalmist talks to God like he is present. But an encounter with God seems withheld. An answer from God seems delayed. God is hiding his face. Jot this down. When suffering has gone on for years, for years, it says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer tears, I'm helpless. <clears throat> we don't know this backstory here, but sounds like a lifelong case of tragedy and despair. Some people, even in this room, have been assigned a lifelong trial or some incurable wound, some permanent malady, uh, something that has been done that can never be undone. And maybe you're wrestling with that. Suffering has gone on for years. Jot this down. When you are sinking helplessly, your wrath has swept over me, verse 16. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. Not only are things not getting better, it feels like God is making them worse. And there's this water illiterate illustration like flooding and I'm under the water and here's here's a picture of of like a person who's submerged and this this is what the psalmist is saying this is me this is maybe that's you this is me this is me this is me and it's been me for a long time it pictures desperation and then Verse 18 again, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There's a double meaning there in the end. My companions, meaning those people, but there's also a, a tense, and I think the NIV brings this out more, where, where darkness has become the only companion. Darkness is all that's left. What's, what's profound is that <clears throat> darkness is the thing that is still being experienced. In fact, the very last word of this song is darkness. And you see now why this is the black sheep of the Psalter, the saddest song in the whole book. Because the final word is not, I believe God is going to, right? Yes, Lord, He would no beauty from ashes. Nope, none of that. God works all things together. Nope, none of that. And that might be where your heart is at. The final word at the end of a full day, after many previous full days of prayer and praise, it's just still dark. The end of all the prayer and the song and the piety and the faith, and nothing has seemed to change. But it's powerful to see that when darkness is all that remains, when darkness is all that remains, still he prays still he sings, still he cries out. When darkness is all that remains, will you sing, will you pray, will you cry out? Stephen Curtis Chapman is one of the most well-known Christian songwriters of all time, and they went through a personal tragedy, family tragedy, maybe 10 years ago when his uh son, uh, ran over his daughter on the driveway, and she died. And can you imagine? Can you imagine? Stephen Curtis Chapman leads the world in worship. He was on a trip to go lead people in worship when he got this terrible call about what had happened in his family. And after they went home and they took several months off. The next thing that they were supposed to do was at the DuPage County Fair. We lived out there. So we went to the DuPage County Fair. We knew Stephen Curtis Chapman was supposed to be there. Nobody thought he would be there. Then it came, out he's gonna come. He's gonna come. And We didn't have tickets or anything, but it was set up so that everybody could see the stage and the concert. And so we were there all day, and we were I was literally walking to the parking garage about to go home, and, and then the concert started. And I was like, wow, they're, they're gonna do it. And his son, who ran over his daughter, is part of the band. So they're both on stage together. And I was impressed. And then, um, and then I was just blown away by what happened. So this, this is like a really amateur video, not mine. Somebody took an amateur video, but I found a clip. Of, this was the first song they performed as a family after this horrible tragedy check it out
1: on the evening of may 21st uh, just after my uh, I placed my little girl maria in the arms of Jesus i didn't know if I would uh, the last thing on my mind was singing a song but and I wasn't sure if I would ever feel right about standing up and singing again. Uh, but it didn't take long to realize that I had to. Because everything that i had been singing all these years and saying, preaching and talking about, uh, I found it to really, really, really be true in a whole new and amazing, powerful yet painful way. And uh, But these words were the first ones that kind of came to mind to my lips and uh, I didn't really feel like I had an option. I had to say this. And as I said it more and more, and as I sang this song, although it wasn't much of a, a song at the time, it was really just a cry and a scream and a, a prayer. Um, I began to, to find an amazing comfort and a peace that truly did and continues to pass understanding. And so uh, I just want to start our night tonight together saying these words and singing these words blessed be the name of our lord blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow blessed be your name blessed
0: I was on the way to the car by the parking garage and I stopped it was dark out and I I just turned around and he had probably performed that song so many times all over the world and but it it was it was a holy moment I was like how is he doing this how is he doing this and he didn't just say it he sang it and he didn't give up on God in the dark. And when you sing, when you sing in the dark, the world knows something heavenly is happening. So don't give up on God in the darkness. Cry out more and more in prayer and in praise. Let's pray. Lord, I know that you will apportion for each one of us a a measure of pain and suffering in this life and i know that people who are here now or, or online or finding this message in the future you have allowed them to go through the darkness maybe they're there now and this psalm is just so true it's so real it's so raw it's so honest and This psalmist gave expression to the very agony that we will endure here on earth. We take comfort, Jesus, knowing that you are a man of sorrows. You were touched directly, fully immersed in all the pain of this life. You suffered with us. You suffered for us. You didn't just do it to endure it, but you did it for us so we invite you, just as this psalmist did, to hear us, to look on us, to see us. We don't know how long the pain will last, and we don't know how, how hard things will become. But Lord, we just give you our heart. We give you our faith. We give you our confidence, and we don't withhold our song. And we know that this sad song was placed in the Bible by your your Holy Spirit himself. This is a divine expression capturing the grief of man. You know, you understand. And so Lord, help us to meet you in this place. Help us, Lord, to trust you in this darkness even more than before. While we don't know where things will go, while we feel like you're far away, we just pray, Lord, that you would minister to us in a special way. We pray that your spirit would groan on our behalf when we even lose words. We trust you, Lord. We trust you. We trust you to bring not only good, that's not our demand. We trust you to bring not only good, but even bad. And there to meet us with a blazing expression of your eternal glory. Show us that glory, Lord. Show us that glory. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.